0: I consider the original Star Wars film among my favorite movies ever and in my youth it puzzled me why they didn't just always make Star Wars films given how great the first three were in 1995 I ran out and spent a lot of allowance money on the VHS box set of the three films when the advertisement for them said they were being made available quote one last time I thought that meant we'd never have another chance at getting home video copies of these movies In a way, that was true, because two years later, all three films were back in theaters and chock-a-block with computer-generated diarrhea. But I was 14 years old and, frankly, was just happy to get a chance to see these films on the big screen, because my introduction to Star Wars had come in the form of network television rebroadcasts that I had watched with my parents on our 13-inch television. I was perfectly happy to have these adulterated versions of the films, because Star Wars was an extremely scarce resource and I was a diehard science fiction enthusiast. It is hard to remember what that was like these days, in our Galaxy's Edge, Mandalorian, Clone Wars new movie every year to Star Wars present. The post-scarcity future is here, and the scarcity we have eliminated is Star Wars stuff. That has been a double-edged blade for Star Wars, because while Disney was able to realize the huge and heretofore underserved market demand for Star Wars things, the new megacorporation owner of Lucasfilm has applied a megacorporate ethos to the way it has decided what to greenlight. That seems to be why the first of the new trilogy films was such a close paint-by-numbers reboot of what we now call Episode IV, A New Hope, and why a film like Solo colon A Star Wars Story fell into so many of the same pitfalls as the infamous prequel trilogy. And the fan culture surrounding the franchise has metastasized some truly ugly splinter groups, including avowedly racist and misogynistic people angered by the slightly more diverse cast of the new films, and even one that has gone so far as to attempt to raise $200 million to remake Episode 8 because they were so mad at the idea that Luke Skywalker would have any regrets or something. Somehow, above the fray in all this has been the first of what are called the anthology films. And that's the film we're here to talk about today. Friendly Fire is a war movie podcast, and the producers went into today's film with the express desire to make it feel like a World War II spy adventure. It tells a story we already sort of know, it's contained in the title crawl of the original film, but it also does some interesting things to complicate the original film and humanize the rebellion as a group of freedom fighters who have had to make really hard sacrifices to advance the cause they believe in. In some cases, at the expense of their own sense of morality. And it blurs the line of what it means to be in the Rebellion, because we learn in this film that the architect of the Death Star built an Achilles heel into the space station intentionally. It doesn't ruin the surprise of Darth Vader's relationship to Luke, or Luke's relationship to Leia or anything, and it even uses some prequel characters and some episode 4 characters to good effect. It takes place in the universe, and it tells its own interesting story without undercutting the universe or the stories of the other films. It's a prequel that doesn't suck. And it's a war film. Congratulations, you are being rescued. Please do not resist. Today on Friendly Fire, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that is always fudging our calculations for the jump to hyperspace. I'm Ben Harrison.
1: Beep, 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 <laughs> beep, beep.
2: That <beep>. ah! <laughs> should have worked. I'm Adam Pranica. That was my Chewbacca impression. Was it good? <laughs> and I'm John I'm I'm stealing impression valor from you, John. <laughs> <laughs> I think
0: people know that you wouldn't be able to make a sound that deep.
2: <laughs> mm. Oof! Yeah, doing an impression of something or someone that is hairy also a great challenge for me. <laughs> yeah, you can just you can hear
1: uh, you can hear that you're not that you're not hairy. Yeah, yeah, you can hear it. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Do you remember when this film came out? What the reaction was to the idea of there being a Star Wars film that was not a Star Wars film?
1: Yes, it, there was a lot of excitement. I thought, yeah, I was excited. The Star Wars movies were as important to me as they were to anybody in my generation, and it wasn't until Return of the Jedi that I realized I had partly been betrayed. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I stood there. I stood idly by when the when the second. Round of Star uh, Wars movies came out. Uh-huh. I did not go to see.
2: You s- didn't see the prequel, Star
1: Wars. What call it? Uh huh. Because it was a, it was a. Phantom
0: f- Menace is the only movie I've gone to in cosplay. Wow. What did you? Who were you? Leia. I I uh, I had a uh, Darth Vader helmet and I uh-huh. and I took it to the to the movie. Aren't you? But pretty- I was. I, I think I was. You were five. No, probably. I was probably fifteen years old oh. when that movie came out.
2: Well, uh, you shouldn't wear any tall hat or helmet in a movie theater, Ben. Excuse me, sir. Well, can you please take off your giant helmet?
0: It's entirely possible that the helmet was pushing down the voluminous hair that I had at the time. Mm-hmm. So, uh,
2: but no, I did
1: not go to see Phantom Menace. I knew that it was a that it was a flaming trash barge, and when it came <laughs> out what a flaming trash barge it was, I felt vindicated. Although I did see it for wow. the first time about 3 weeks ago. Because I have an eight-year-old and she wanted to see it. And so I watch it with her.
0: Did you like the part where Liam Neeson goes, I don't know who you are, but I have a very particular set of magical skills that make me a nightmare for Sith like you.
1: I don't. I don't. Uh, it, there there are no good quotes from that movie. Uh, there is no, there are no good scenes. There is They've no... gone into
0: the ventilation shaft. That's a good quote.
1: There's no plot. It's, I, I found that it was racist, uh, and Jar Jar Binks wasn't even the most racist thing in it. I don't know. No, it's awful. And then this movie came out, this Rogue One.
2: Well, here's the thing. like To place it in time, it was The Force Awakens came out in 2015, and then this came after oh, in 2016. So we Awakens. had already gotten our, our taste of... Of the seventh Star Star Wars film.
1: I see. The seventh
2: seal. That sort of like reset. It, it sort of palate cleansed the prequel into, well, this is what Star Wars is going to be now and, and evermore. So we had that movie and then we had this movie right after. Right. And I think it really changed the narrative around Star Wars films.
1: Well, because, because the thing about Force Awakens is there's a lot of pandering in that movie. And I don't like, I still am not... Like, Adam Driver is great in Girls. You
2: can't just say that. Like, in what way do you mean the the pandering? Pandering to who or what? Oh, well, it's just, it
1: gives us everything that we've asked for, which is, can we have Leia back? Can we have oh, all right. Han Solo back? Can we have Luke back? And what we didn't get was those characters when we wanted them, which was 1989 through 1999. And so it's this, it's kind of a sad, like, reunion almost like oh you didn't get to see these people in their prime but we're gonna trot them out here and uh and give them all like the death scenes
2: i don't know what it is about me but i did not feel like that was a nostalgia grab and but i'm a person that digs nostalgia grabs like i like I like the last couple of Rocky films and and the Creed films. Like I like going back to film universes that I grew up enjoying. Yeah, you're a monster. <laughs> that's been well established. But i th- I think I think the new Star Wars films are good and better than the prequels. And I don't think that's controversial to no, say. I don't think but, it but, is. Either. But I, to whatever degree that they may be pandering or not by the use of the original trilogy actors. I didn't feel like they were in the films that much or enough to warrant a pandering label.
1: Well, but that's the problem. They're the only thing interesting about The Force Awakens hmm. because Adam Driver is not a compelling bad guy. He's I like
2: Adam Driver. Well, he's a
1: very nice man, I'm sure, and he's a wonderful actor, but as a but he's like a like a whiny a whiny Vader. We didn't need a whiny Vader. We got a whiny Vader in the prequels. We got a super whiny Vader in the yeah. prequels. Here's what we don't need in Star Wars. Whiny Vaders. <laughs> <laughs> like the 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 Star Wars wine should come from Luke. Luke is the whiner.
2: But I was going to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. I think, okay, here's, this is related to what we're talking about in terms of like nostalgia and using characters and people that we like from, from Star Wars and, and using them in modern Star Wars films. Okay. Is Darth Vader's usage in Rogue One, I feel like, is very well done. And yeah. it, you, you get very little of him, but what you do get is a wrathful Vader in a way that I feel like he had only earned by reputation throughout all of Star Wars. But to see him single-handedly destroy 40 people in a hallway was a way I never thought about him. Like, I, you only ever see him fight Luke or... or, or single other people one at a time and you're like wow he's really good with the lightsaber but until you see him take on a horde right you never get that yeah. and, and his use in this film is not overdone i think it's very well done. When that
1: door comes up and there are and there are fifty like rebellion soldiers and I'm it's just him standing there, even
2: thinking about it. It's so well. And done you're like, in what this the movie. fuck are you
1: going to do, Darth Vader? Yeah. And then it's like, oh, you're going to kick everybody's ass. Yeah. There's a lot of revisionism though in the in the Vader's appearance here because when we meet Darth Vader in Star Wars, <laughs> um, <laughs> we do not, you know, like. Rob, we already reviewed that
2: movie on this show. You don't need to make that case again, John. Just for the listener at home, there was 40 seconds of silence after that that Rob just cut out. (laughs) Um, But he, it is not, I mean, he is somewhat human
1: scale. And in Rogue One, we are introduced to him living alone in a volcano temple, submerged in a vat of like, like elephant semen like this guy (laughs) vader could
2: live anywhere why does he choose to live there sure you could get a condo
1: somewhere like there there's a great world on this in this very movie where the archive is which is like beach planet
0: yeah and you've got all of the luxuries of being close to an imperial installation right exactly they got all the spa facilities He he probably got, like, all his melanin burned off. And so now he he wants to be on a very dark planet so that he doesn't get a sunburn.
2: I see, I see. It feels like a person whose entire family died in like a drowning beach accident buying a home on the beach why would you live on top of all of that lava sure that lava, lava stole your
1: body lava's what happened to him it's the bad it's stuff it's a
2: constant reminder It's
1: you know we're given the impression in this movie that lava empowers him somehow
2: but it can't it makes him sad yes every day a
1: daily reminder go to the go to I Hoth. mean,
0: Christ <laughs> was crucified but it's but the Christians worship the cross oh, so, you know Hoth, go Hoth be figure. better
2: sure, why Hoth doesn't? has got us feel so good on what? that burned skin. Why doesn't Dark Veda uh, live in Hoth? <laughs> well, if he lived on
0: Hoth, though, there would never have been a rebel base there. Uh, well, there's got to be you know? another Hoth. Yeah, there's probably other...
1: Other Hoths.
0: What about Pluto? Uh, That's dark and cold.
1: No, this was a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away from Pluto, my
0: friend. Oh, I was uh, I was looking at my phone when the title card came up at the beginning of the movie. I didn't, I didn't catch that.
1: <sighs> I felt like a Force Awakens was a very good way a very good like let's get this model train back on the rails mm-hmm. but rogue one did the did the other kind of pandering which is it takes place exactly in like the, basically the month before star wars happens yeah it's only revealed to us at the very end like when we see leia turn but we see you know grand moff tarkin like weirdly uncanny valleying his way through this movie. Um, so it's, so it's exciting in that respect that it puts you there. But honestly, this movie
0: is just a good movie. It's just a good sci-fi movie. Well, it's taking the story that's described in the, in the opening crawl and saying like, okay, if that's true, like, what would that look like? Right. And which and is kind of what the prequels going about that. Well,
1: what the prequels promised was like, oh yeah, let's tell the story that happened before this, and it turned out, oh no, the like George Lucas and his team of ass licking, boot kissing yes men could not in three movies p- like staple together a single interesting moment. Not in three movies. A this single is a interesting
2: film moment. that feels uniquely aimed at the prequel. In a this is yeah, how it should have been exactly. done kind like, of way.
1: Fuck you. Here's a here's your prequel right here. Yeah. My only, my only beef with this, let's just get it's, right into it. It
2: sounds like you've got beeves
1: already. I got a lot of beeves, but my only beef with, with Rogue One, because I don't have that many beeves with it. <laughs> my, one, my beef with it is that what made Star Wars great, Luke does not have any sense of humor, right? Han Solo has a lot of sense of humor, but Leia has got like a real sense of humor right Leia is Leia's a hard she's brassy she's hard right but she's she gets it she gets it's funny she gets it's she's wry like Han is kind of a lightweight right he's like he's like a swaggering he's like a you know a swinging dick Leia's got the got the combination of both and you get the sense that Dark Vader has a sense of humor you never meet it but, but he, <laughs> who? else would buy this home on top
2: of lava?
1: <laughs> he lets, like, he lets pauses go by, right? He he has he has comedic timing. Dark Vader does.
0: Yeah, he chokes that. He force chokes that guy when he asks if he's still in charge of the of the project. That yeah, was really funny. That's
1: fucking hilarious. But at, in Rogue One, what we don't get is a lead character that has any sense of humor. Um because uh, like what are our characters? Oh
2: boy, there? I I think I've got to come down hard on this take because guess who is the funniest and best character of this film? It's K2SO.
1: Okay, K2SO. All right,
2: you're right. Which is crazy because in Star Wars in the Star Wars universe all of the droids are written in my experience to be like simpering, eye rolling, not really great dialogue to sort of laymo's and K2SO for some reason is one of the most interesting characters in all of Star Wars to me. It
0: really sucks for C3PO to be in this movie right. for a, a moment not to remind been... <laughs> us what a <laughs> yeah. what a dope C3PO.
1: <laughs> God, you're so right. Here's the problem with that take. He is in the family of Jar Jar Binks in the sense that he's not a central character. His humor is all uh, you know he's like uh, he's a comedy uh, adjunct, right? He comes in. He's only there for like comedy lines. Now Jar Jar Binks is an abomination. He is a great version of it. Okay. But at the center of the movie, in the relationship between the main protagonist, like the like the the imperial uh, 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 shuttle pilot is has humor. Mm-hmm. The two uh, the two Japanese guys, the blonde guy and his uh, his assistant, are funny. They're funny and they have, there's humor in their relationship. But between the two protagonists, uh, Jin Urso and Cassian Andor, can't believe I'm talking. I it's, love that. Uh, it might as well be like <laughs> Frodo Baggins and, um, they don't there's no fun between them
2: you're you're right i didn't read past the first sentence of your film paper but yeah, like sorry. if we're talking about primary characters and i i guess you would have to say that k2so is not oh no, he's just there for he's there for giggles i could not get enough of him as a character yeah i don't want to be gender norm normative i'm just going to say uh, i could not get enough of it right
0: yeah, I think K2SO is not a primary character because K2SO doesn't undergo any character change. Right, like all of that is all of that burden is on Jin and Cassian.
1: And I should say before before anyone calls me out, the two Asian actors who play the the two characters are both Chinese actors. Right, but you know it's very like meant as a sort of Zen kind of universe, right? So
0: yeah, I think the other thing I love about Some of the characters in this movie is that it leaves us wanting more. Like, they, like, everybody dies at the end of this movie, and it's introduced us to like like those guys in K2SO and the Forrest Whitaker character and the Riz Ahmed character are all like super fun.
1: I would have spent three like movies with them.
0: People to populate this universe and they're like they can't bring them back. Like they can't tell the next story about these guys cuz they're all dead. Right, or the story that came before cuz they they didn't know one another. Yeah, I, and that right. that felt brave,
1: but it also felt um like if if you're doing a if you're doing a thing like this whole series is, which is just a it's just like franchising Arbys across the United States. Why would you not franchise this Arbys too? You could have fifteen right. different Star Warses going at one time. We have
2: the meat. the The cynicism I have towards major franchises and their and and comic book films and and all of the other things is like you could see the potential of this being extruded into its own thing and that it doesn't take that path makes me love it I know even more. Yeah. It's what emotionally grounded it for me in such a way that like one by one, all of our favorite characters are killed and I feel every death and until finally they're all gone. It was... I could not believe that the film was doing that to its own characters and to us when it had every reason, every real life reason even not to do it.
1: Yeah, although there wasn't a way for them to go from here because we already live in, if if they were going to have a future with the rebellion, we would have met them in the many hours we spent with the rebellion from this moment forth, right? So they had to get immolated. When did you know that everyone was going to die. I didn't. I was surprised with every every passing death and mourned them,
2: right? That not even one makes it out, I think is another one of the great brave choices of the story. Yeah. It's great.
1: And I think casting Felicity Jones at the center, you know, she's very attractive Hollywood person, obviously, but she also is a very real looking person. And so we're, we don't have that thing. And I think Rogue One made this mistake of casting a bunch of Hollywood looking people and what was great about star Wars, the original star Wars was it kind of felt cheap, you know, and it didn't have, I mean, they got Alec Guinness and he really didn't want to be there. Um, but everybody else was just sort of who was standing around. And yeah. this movie had that feeling too.
0: They're weird. And that's like one of the things we like about them. And one of the things we connect with is like, Oh, they're kind of weird. Like us.
1: Yeah. yeah. right. Who are these people? And, and I, I never felt like I never felt like Cassie and Andor I felt like he was too slight in stature. Diego Luna is a small man.
2: But but I, I think that supports your argument earlier of of like people are differently sized in this film than you would expect from action or war hero types. Right,
1: right. And and, and that, that that maybe is it does make my point, right? That I was made uncomfortable by the fact that like he had so much gravity and so much authority, but like he also didn't feel very strong
2: like i don't want to make this so much about like wow this film really usurped all of the expectations i had and that's why it's great but another aspect of that is like Cassie and Andor and Jen Urso never never hook up. They don't Han Solo and and Leia them they, ever. They look into each other's eyes. That when they die together, I felt like that was the death. That was not a romantic death. That was like two soldiers on the battlefield who have like ultimate respect for each other going down on the battlefield. I I did not feel a romantic component to it, and that was another way that I totally respected a film not choosing the wow.
0: predictable. I thought that scene was so jackable. I'm surprised you didn't.
2: (laughs) If
1: Adam's thinking, can I jack it to that?
2: Well, yeah, (laughs) that's one of the most beautiful scenes in the film. And, And there's like beauty in destruction in this film too that I think this film does a great job of. Every time the Death Star fires on a planet or a target, there's something oddly gorgeous about what happens as a result.
1: Not oddly gorgeous, it's phenomenal. I mean, the Death Star as a the I think the genius move of pulling the Death Star back. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's a planet destroyer, but also we can just create a 50 megaton explosion anywhere we want and then watch everyone yeah. in 300 miles of that place just be vaporized by a slow-moving like fireball. That's
0: yeah, the slow Fantastic. motionness of those of of, yeah. of those fireballs felt very nine eleven to me. Like that, we're like all sitting watching this thing that is happening far away, but close enough to hurt. You know,
1: far away but close enough to hurt, man. That's what all my lady friends say about me.
2: <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> Star Wars kinetically is so often about like fast space battle. And uh, and dogfighting and stuff and to get a film that has both that and the very slow motion, slow moving freight train,
1: the inevitable death, the inescapable
0: death.
2: Yeah, I think is a great combination. I swear to God, the first Star
0: Wars, the attack on the Death Star was, you know, famously based on World War Two dogfighting footage. And this movie set out to tell a World War II heist film style story. And uh, I wondered if you guys thought it was effective in that goal.
2: I think it was in a particularly unique way in that a lot of heist films ask you to trust someone, trust an expert because you need their expertise but everything else mm-hmm. about that character is untrustworthy and that's where the tension is in a heist film like that and the whole Jin Erso character is that like because of who who her dad is no one really trusts her up until the moment where their lives are placed in her hands and i think that is that is something that is uh, deeply in parallel with some of our favorite heist films whether or not there that's a related idea to a war film specifically but yeah. that i really gravitated towards I felt a lot of Force 10 from Navarone in this movie.
1: The only problem with that with um with that is that everything in the Star Wars world also nowadays has to be tied to some sort of like mythology. What's nice about this is that she's not given midi right? We're not we don't right. see her as a supernatural person
0: the Donnie Yen character kind of verges into the supernatural a couple of times, but he never like, he doesn't flip the switch at the end using the force. He has to walk up to it and and flip it himself.
1: Right. He feels like something that should be in star Wars a lot more than is, which is people who under, who understand there is a force who, but who are lay people and who are not in control of it. You know, people like that, that, if it is a religious, this guy's allegory. got like
0: ten midi you know. Well, I mean, enough that he 1500. can fifteen
1: hundred. But but there's an argument that he just has uh, his trust in the Force and his his other senses are heightened, and he can do <laughs> uh, you know he can do some some limited amount of super fighting, right? But there's a portentousness to everything that happens in Star Wars these days, where the fun is to a certain degree squeezed out of it in favor of making it part of this temple culture, right? The we're so worshipful of it that anyone making a star Wars movie, they have to balance their fun against the, uh, against the expectation that, I mean, there's a, in a sense, they have to keep proving themselves as serious minded, real science fiction because we impart so much of that, Maybe unnecessarily, like our our worshipfulness of it in our own time, forces the filmmakers, forces the the inheritors of the legacy to keep putting this
2: religiosity in it, where it's not necessary. They, these are goofs. I liked how this film didn't take uh Donnie Yen's character super seriously and had and like at times made fun of him it for did. his spirituality. That's true, and I, I don't feel like other Star Wars films. ...are into that.
1: They do not have senses of humor about themselves.
2: About the Force, specifically.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, as soon as the as soon as soon midichlorians were introduced into the canon, how can any of us take the Force seriously? <laughs> what, a, <laughs> what a fucking... What a bag of foam peanuts that whole storyline
2: is. You know, that line, I'm one with the Force and the Force is with me, begins as a way to make fun of the Donnie Yen character and ends up being something that's celebrated right. on the battlefield. It's true, and it's good. It, that's nice. It's pretty. That transition, I think, is worth noting in a film that that also makes fun of the Force. Like a character comes full circle on their feelings about it right? in a way that I feel like as a viewer you can also do. So do you think that in
1: my own character art, one day I'm going to... You're going like, to love midichlorians I'm at gonna, some point. No, I'm going to stand there with my sister and be like, yes, I'm totally manifesting good financial security in my candle making business (laughs) or whatever fuck
2: I think a I think a battlefield circumstance galvanizes feelings like (laughs) that and I don't know if you're gonna be doing too much candle making out there
0: yeah I think the other the other like religious iconography is the crystal necklace and we learned that kyber crystals are the crystals that power the death star Mm. and lightsabers and and everything
1: else right
0: that's like an idea that has the risk of being as corny as Metachlorians if you introduce it to the canon but the idea that the Death Star and lightsabers have the same thing in the middle of them I think is actually pretty evocative and uh, and I think it's well handled in this movie
1: yeah although it did, it does feel like um, wow this is the first we're hearing of uh, Kyber Crystals seems like that would have come up before in conversation if um if they really were so important
0: uh, <laughs> yeah. to powering everything in this world. Yeah. Nobody ever like drops their lightsaber and the, and the compartment opens and I ah, crap, my Kyber crystals went all over the place. Can you right. help me pick them up?
1: But I thought that the the overall arc of this story and her adventure and the way it ties into star Wars, it all worked and it and there are a lot of ways it couldn't, you know. There are a lot of ways that it, it it could have, and maybe should have fallen apart. Um, but it held together and was
2: enjoyable. I think it's one of the rare examples of a film that's a part of a franchise and part of a greater story that totally can exist on its own and and doesn't need its source material to be good.
0: Right. I I felt like the first. Forty or so minutes of the movie were were kind of rough. Like I liked all the scenes individually, but it's doing so much cutting around to all these different planets, and there was a lot of
1: that. Right?
0: <laughs> it, it didn't. It it took a long time to make the case for like why why should I watch a scene about this Diego Luna character after the scene about the little girl and. Uh, getting you know like having to go into the spider hole in the in the cave why does the movie need to spend 40 minutes setting all these people up and i think it like it does work in retrospect but but i i found myself kind of fighting to to stay interested for the first 40 minutes
2: i really loved so many characters individually and i wondered why i didn't love forrest whitaker's character more for a film that spends so much time setting up When Saw Guerrera finally dies, I know that's supposed to be a poignant moment, but I didn't feel like there was like that was one of the parts of the film that I could have used more time and more more foundation to. I didn't didn't think he got enough of it.
1: When he opens the lid to her garbage can, if we had another
2: just two minutes of
1: like a like a quick cut timeline scene of him teaching her how to she's shooting cans off of a a fence exactly yeah and that's before he needs before he has robot legs and needs oxygen yeah when they're just young and carefree he's in pretty rough shape by the time we see him again yeah he's a he's a a walking trash can
0: i really like the character though like i love the I, i love the choices that forrest whitaker makes with it like the way he like yanks on stuff on his like it, it, it's like he hates all of his yeah. all of his uh augmentations and that's a uh, that's really funny and i like how how like inhumane he feels when he meets the riz Ahmed character and doesn't believe his story and and subjects him to
2: the uh the squid mind reader character how long have you lived in tulsa Boy, it might be applying too much real life to a science fiction story, but like I wonder how much of Forrest Whitaker's choices there are informed by uh veterans who wear prostheses for for limbs that are gone, you know like and the feelings around the use of those
1: yeah hmm. he's ta- definitely taking a lot of uh like cues from blue velvet, yeah, maybe it was a <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was an homage sal guerrera uh, big pabst blue ribbon drinker <laughs> this might be uh this might be part of the twin peaks canon yeah i really liked ben Mendelssohn as the bad guy yeah me too it's nice to have an intermediary bad guy who is truly bad and not a not simpering
0: yeah well and also interesting to see ben mendelson play a bad guy
1: does he usually play good guys
0: no, he always plays a bad guy. He, oh no, that's right. He's just—he does. He seems like a born bad guy.
2: I think yeah. it's—it was a good decision to put him in white as a costume. You know, so much of yeah. the empire is black and dark, and I don't think there's ever a time he's wearing anything dark. And when a when a guy strides into screen wearing white, you have assumptions well, about also them. Also, cape. You know.
0: Yeah. And also, Mads Mikkelsen is in black, and Mads Mikkelsen always plays bad guys. Also. Yeah. So the idea that. We're trying to thread the needle of liking Mads Mikkelsen. Like, like we can really understand why everybody but Jin hates Mads Mikkelsen's character in this movie.
1: And Ben Mendelssohn, who is, what's his character's name? Svor Gerbischmark? The director Krennic. That's a character with a sense of humor, right? You can tell that he's a little, you know, he likes to play. He knows these people personally, and this is something we hardly ever see in these scenes where some bad guy from the empire shows up looking for a lost child. They're always, they always are just played as, um, Nazis. And he is one of these, he's like, a, what? what is the term? Like a friendly Nazi, right? He's the he's the guy in the white cape <laughs> who's like, I'm not a bad guy. Come on. We're going to put you up in a nice apartment.
2: The prequels failed so utterly in how much importance it placed in the politicking. And all Ben Mendelssohn's character is doing in the film is politicking around. But his is interesting because he's got this ambition. Yeah. And Grand Tarkin just fucking kneecaps him like- it's his death star, yeah, it's his whole plan, and to see it taken away from him so publicly, like right after the demonstration, it hurts. It does hurt, and you realize, like, oh, that must happen all the time. That could have been a major component of the prequels, like like this sort of conflict among among the military and the and the and the politicians, but it's not. It's just meetings. Yeah. It's a plausible
0: kind of conflict for the bad guys to have because it's like like there's a kind of ambition that is rewarded in like mafia slash Nazi style organization the Empire is, but he doesn't he he doesn't fit comfortably into it. Like he's too ambitious for them almost.
1: Right, right. He's too slick. And within their within their worldview, Tarkin's like naked just uh, rank pulling is a sort of survival of the fittest. Like, yeah, that's right. He did it. What can you do about it? Nothing. So shut up. And, um yeah. and the, you know, director Tarkin is just, he's like, what? No. And that's so not empire. Yeah. He's so not empire, bro.
0: But when you see him with uh, underlings, like at the, at the uh, archive and like explosions start happening uh-huh. all around on the beach, like, like, you know that he is the number one guy there. For sure. You know, like, that's never under any, in any question. And when people are, like, even slightly, uh, you know, indecorous with him, he fucking destroys them.
1: Well, it's like, w- if we ever saw Paul Reiser's character from Aliens go back to the office <laughs> and de- deal with a bunch of, uh, you know, like, stenographers, uh, right. he would... We'd see a very Helen different
2: Paul Hunt's Reiser, just really busting his chops back at home.
0: <laughs> no, but you know, like he's, he's so, always married to Helen Hunt. <laughs> he's so sneaky
1: and simpering, but you know that in, if he, when he's in a situation where he's in in just char in charge over like his staffers, that he's a completely different guy and a total
2: dick. His desperation is so tied to his ability to go different places, you know? Like, he's having to run all these errands to save himself or make the case for himself. And, like, there's such strength in Tarkin, like, never moving. He's always on the bridge. Right. And Krennic is just made to ask Vader like mom (laughs) said no he's asking dad he's uh he's he's like above the beach watching shit rain down upon him he's he's involved in every major scene in the film
1: oh when he says to Vader like does that mean I get to keep my command and Vader just chokes him yeah just to fucking shut him up or just to show him like you punk
0: that's Vader being funny that's Vader being Vader
2: are we sure that's Vader choking him or is that just the noxious fumes from the magma (laughs) <laughs> that's that's flowing underneath his
0: his high rise apartment. Do you think Vader ripped a bad fart on his way out of the room and that's what he's choking on?
2: I mean the the air conditioning bill alone for that place, very costly. Yeah.
0: Would
1: this here's a question that I have about every Star Wars movie after Empire Strikes Back, which is if you didn't have the full weight of the Star Wars universe, which you already inhabit in your imaginarium would this movie make any sense and would it stand on its own like my problem with the prequels is that without the without star wars and empire strikes back the prequels are terrible terrible movies they're terrible movies anyway but they would be unmakeable movies no one would have allowed a a new director to spend that much money making those movies because they're plotless
0: yeah, but there's stuff about the first one that has always really impressed me, which is how much in media race the war feels like it is when that film starts. Like you you hear people toss off references to the Senate having been dissolved and you never see what the Senate is or anything like when Luke is talking to his friends, they have kind of an argument of just guys that live on Tatooine and want to go pick up power converters at Tashi station. Like, like you, like you don't ever find out what the, why power converters are important to him. But the, the fact that that means wasting time with your friends kind of just like the texture of that movie is a lot. A lot of it is achieved through how, lived in the world feels and how unexplained so many of the things are. So I kind of think this would work by itself. If this was the only movie from the star Wars universe you ever saw, I feel like you would like it and not care that you didn't know the backstory or, or whatever. In a
1: way, I feel like you would like it more, right? If this was the product of us, if this was a singular movie, the product of, of one imagination and Darth Vader appeared halfway through living in a volcano castle, and and that was all we got you would be like who's the- that guy who, what screenwriter put this shit together you know really great <laughs> whereas the first three Star Warses, I don't think would and so my question about all this stuff and you guys with your Star Trek world and the whole Marvel universe is like why do we want and I know you want to Adam why do we want to go back to this this World that was that sprung from the imagination of one person, George Lucas, in 1976 or whenever it was that it all came to him, some boomer. And we're living within the (laughs) confines of this universe that he built a long time ago. And we just want to keep going back to his fucking closet full of toys instead of taking all these ideas, all these all this money and writing a new script. Writing scripts is hard, but not that hard. There's a thousand unmade scripts right now, science fiction scripts about cool shit happening, written by clever people, and we keep going back to this, to the and and just recycling, you know, like we we drink it, we piss it out, and then we, when well, we filter it and drink it again. And I don't.
0: That's. I think you're thinking of Waterworld, John. That's a different. That too. And first film. of all, why are there
1: not five Waterworlds? That's what I really want. <laughs> Why can't because we go there back was to- a
2: first water world. Why,
1: why why can't we go back to that water world?
2: I think this film benefited from the second question. The first question being, can we make more Star Wars films based off of the source material? The second question ne- so rarely gets asked is, how do we make it good? So often like you greenlight Star Wars films and franchise films and comic book films that just answer the first question. But this one seems intensely curious about how to make itself great. Mm-hmm.
0: The same executives that made this one also made Solo, which a lot of people consider to be the worst thing that has Star Wars on it. Would Solo
1: be a terrible movie if we didn't come in with all of our Han Solo bags packed? If it was just a science fiction movie starring this young, like, cocksure dude?
0: Did we- I don't know. Like, I really liked that movie when... I, when I saw it in the theater, I didn't and then, hate it either. like, I've been surprised at how negative most of the commentary about surrounding it has been, but I do think that it does, it, it makes some of the same mistakes that the prequels make about like, if this happened in one of the movies, then like in, in one of the original movies, the, then let's show like why it happened or whatever. Right. And, and it's a little like simplistic with a couple of those moments.
1: You know, we could be in a Harlan Ellison world. We could be in a world that was written by a 24 year old screenwriter. And I bet you it's, I bet you it would be more fun. So all the hate for solo is just that it doesn't line up with what people think about some other bullshit. The movie itself, I thought was pretty fun. Just change the people's names and put it on it, put it somewhere else. (laughs) And it's, and it's a, and it's a good movie that stands on its own.
2: There's a concept that Ben and I talk about a lot on our Star Trek show, which is the idea of Star Trek being a place rather than a character or a creator or, or anything like that. It's a place to tell good stories if you can do it. And this feels like Star Wars is a place. Mm. This, is, this is a caper film and a war film inside the Star Wars universe, incidentally.
1: But here's what I'm saying, right? We're living now for some reason in 2020, basically, in a world where the places that we allow stories to be told are George Lucas Town, and uh, Jack Kirby Town, and uh, who did the Star Star Trek? Uh, Gene Roddenberry Town, right? And these are three du- three old white dudes, and we talk a lot, and all three of these, all three of these. Uh, properties, media properties have in subsequent years done a a halfway decent job of introducing characters that have some, some cultural diversity to them. But the worlds themselves are like, they have, they're very bound by rules generated by mid century white writers. And it's not necessary except that it's, except that it's our whoopee. Right. There are so many people out there who are like, I'm a I'm a a, a savvy consumer, but I need my whoobie of Did the you, force and the
2: fucking empire. What woobies are there in Rogue One? Really? Like, like there is. Dark Vader. Yeah, but he's in it so little. But he's so, the. And, he's and, the, and he's so the, is Leia. Leia's in it for two seconds. I know, but they're the woobies. I think it's all the,
0: the ships are yeah. that. All right. Uh, the woobie woobies ships.
1: you don't see are as big as the woobies you do.
2: Hmm.
0: Here's here's what I'll say. I think that there are kind of two things that are affecting this. One is the like internationalization of the film market and how like you need you need stories that are uh clean enough that you can sell them in more conservative marketplaces that don't let you show boobs or say the f-word, which is why I like the like the television and, and film thing has flipped where you never used to see nudity on TV and now there's tons of nudity on TV and y- you used to see it all the time in films and now you never do. And like like Disney and and the other like major production companies are serving like so many masters now that they have to... Like, they have to make the safe bets. They have to spend a hundred million dollars to make one billion dollars every time. And they can't, they like literally don't feel like they can risk twenty million dollars to make forty million dollars. And at the same time, I think that like our society is rewarding these things because the world feels so fucking crazy and complicated now that it's nice to just go spend some time on something that is just fun, you know, and this movie is really fun and, and that's not like a bad thing about it. I
1: have to fight that because that argument like, Oh, you know, it's just fun. Don't shit on my fun is such a prevalent argument in our time. And it's like, no, you have an obligation to try and consume media that is challenging. It's just, it's, I mean, fun is for kids. And if you're going to make, interesting things that are that are you know they they should have a viewpoint they should have a they should advance us somehow or our culture somehow i mean
2: if we took yeah but some people find their meaning outside of films and would rather their films just be fun like like a film isn't the only vehicle for that kind of enrichment
1: yeah but these films crowd out they take all the oxygen away from everything else like if we went to lizzo right now and said write us a science fiction movie i bet you she'd have it done in a weekend and i would watch it you know and it and would you, be
2: fascinating you better be goddamn sure there'd be nudity in it you know it would be killer
0: yeah. right <laughs> uh, but there's no room for that it would there never would be so many butts uh, and
1: and the thing is we uh, culturally in america we've gone through various phases right where sometimes the studio is in charge sometimes we're just making huge epics and sometimes little cool things are getting made by people that are that are uh, where the system is broken a little bit and cool music gets made, cu- cool movies get made. And we're just living in a time when it seems like all the people who should be rooting for underdogs are throwing all their weight behind these giant media properties that do nothing that are just that's just that are just masturbatory. And I'm not saying that about Rogue one. I think Rogue One is an example of... A scrappy little underdog movie. It just snuck in under the wire because it draped itself in all this in all this merchandising that we've come to expect will be on top of anything we
2: go to watch. It's incredible when I look at the year that was that this film was made. I'm like, really 2016. It feels like it was 10 years ago that this film came out versus three years ago for that reason like there was room for this film in 2016 this feels like in the middle of the 2010s is where like none of this would have everything happened. starts to fold in on itself and it becomes just total
0: right suicide squad deadpool something called split it's batman versus super superman colon dawn of justice
1: <laughs> is that dawn of justice ghostbusters um, like uh D-O-N? a guy dawn of justice yeah, Don Johnson oh. is the... <laughs> that would be my character.
0: Plays the title role. I'm Don. Don of Justice. Capo of, Dest- of Justice didn't roll off the tongue mm-hmm. quite the way right. they wanted it to. Godfather. X-Men colon Apocalypse. Captain America colon Civil War. Let's see,
2: there we go. It's weird how a film from this franchise almost argues against itself by its existence, right? Like, this film proves that it's possible.
1: Yeah. Well, like you said, it's a, it's a big, it's a stick in the eye of the prequels, but it also feels like a stick in the eye of, of, uh, a force awakens. It feels like a stick in the eye of everything.
2: You know what? But except that I feel like this film is making its case in a, in a way that is, I am great versus all of that is shit.
1: Right. Well, the same way that the Star Trek movie that came out where it was all young dudes, and we saw young kurt and young speck yeah, uh, Spe- yeah. Young, young kurt and speck yeah <laughs> um and and those and those characterizations were great in a way better almost you know like those those young actors did such a great job and that movie was so fun Yeah. and you're like like yes reboot it you know what reboot it like let's go let's take let's take a whole other take on it
0: and and like using the the modern tools of of Uh, special effects to make the world feel bigger and more fully realized and and more fun to be in.
1: Right, right. But take the plot... Of that movie, which is a young guy from the Space Academy and his uh, his uh, Klingon friend or his, uh, his uh, Romulan yeah, friend. You get, you get it, right? Uh, yeah. gets a, you know, they get together on a rocket ship and they go to Mars or whatever it was that they did. Perfect. Um, yeah. And one of them's
0: got a Corvette, You remember right? it with such vivid detail, John. <laughs> uh,
1: w- like, why does that have to be in Star Trek? Why can't it just be a new movie about some young dudes in space? Like how does it being in star trek give me that extra bit of i'm i'm genuinely asking because i want to see a star trek movie what's wrong with you <laughs> don't you want to see a don't you want to see a new movie of movie about like like tomato
2: but star. but that's but that's star I'm, movie i am uh... Space. I, I want to see all the movies
1: space times three but you don't get to see all the movies you only get to see the Star Trek and the Star Wars movies because that's all that gets made
2: most people don't have the time to consume all the movies most people make choices about where to spend their movie theater ticket buying dollar and they and they choose the big franchise I think that's a natural state for most people mm. But there is a movie playing in the eighth smallest size movie theater in the Metroplex that but there I'm going to try though. to see. You know
1: what that movie is? That's some kind of costume drama starring uh, starring a bunch of British people.
2: It's Downtown Abbey, the movie. <laughs> yeah, Downtown yeah. Abbey.
0: There's a movie on our pork chop list that I think we'll get to eventually called John Carter that is a Disney movie and, and an attempt to make a new franchisable Uh, space saga that uh, they could make a zillion sequels out of and it didn't work because nobody had ever heard you know nobody knew what John Carter was I think it's like a pretty fun movie but it just didn't it didn't sell because it didn't it wasn't IP that anybody was familiar with and I think that that goes to that thing that you were saying before about like we want our we we want to stay in our comfort zone as a as a marketplace like the the movie has to be yummy and it can't be complicated
1: yeah it's i think it's i think it's creatively bankrupt right because there's no 2001 a space odyssey winter soldier
2: it's only creatively (laughs) bankrupt if the thing you're making is bad but but this is an example of something that's good the
1: rare rare example right how many of the rambo movies were good Zero. But if you believe that, the- <laughs> would you let me answer the question? If you believe that one is good, how many more were good? One, two, and four were good. One, two, and okay. F- which one was four? Is that the four one? Four was they- the one in Burma. John Rambo. The one in Burma. Who, who nobody saw that. What are you
2: talking? about? It was about? playing in theater eight at the Metroplex. How- That's where I was. Okay.
1: John. How many Star Trek movies are good?
2: A little more than half uh, of
1: them. Ben. Every other one. Ben, can <laughs> you good. can you
2: back that up? Every other one. How
1: many of them are really good though?
0: I would say that there are 3 of them that that, that I would say are great films.
1: Adam is mad um, at me right now and he wants me to he wants he wants uh Rob to cut all this out.
2: I don't. No, I think this is this is stuff this is what you asked for in the Captain America episode. You were like we need to be we need to be more scrutinous about the consumption of our things and why we do them. Scrutinous. And what I'm doing, like I'm I'm playing that game with you. Okay, good. But my answers are insufficient. Scrutinous for is for some reason.
1: No, your answers are I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I I agree. I just don't want there's always been a place for sequels, right? There was always a place for Back to the Future 2, Back to the Back to the Future. Future to the back to the future.
2: <laughs> I, I need you to understand, and I'm speak. I'm speaking for everyone here yes, when I say okay. this, is that you're not going to talk me out of liking a thing that I like.
1: Here's what I want. One science fiction movie that is not part of a franchise, that is also like a bit, like, do you remember the movie Moon? Yeah, that was great. That's a great movie. Now, a small movie, hard, nobody saw it but a great movie. They make Moon,
2: a they weird make movie. Ad Astra, they make Interstellar. The, these Inter- are films that come out every year. Uh, I guess you're right. All right. There's a frequency
0: to this. Okay. Gemini man. Okay, I mean, all right, you're right. We we can all remember where we were when we Space saw Cowboys. Gemini man. <laughs>
2: uh, Armageddon. But here's Deep the problem. Impact. Here's the problem with Interstellar. It was a fucking shit show. I we you and I are in agreement there. Uh, I went to go see that with a very good friend of mine and he came out of the theater feeling like it was a spiritual moment that he would always remember uh, wow. and and prize. He was like in tears over it and I looked at him and I was like, I am so envious of you right now. I wish. I wish I saw it the same way because I would like to feel that way after seeing a movie and I do not no, after that. No,
1: I would get into a fist fight with somebody over you would, loo- Yeah, you, you lose friends over your movie opinions. I feel like I'm about to, right? <laughs> uh, although I felt like, um, uh, what was the movie about the guy whose whole life was being videotaped and he didn't know it?
2: Oh, the Jim Carrey movie. Yeah. Truman Show? Yeah. Truman Show.
1: I came out of the Truman Show feeling really transformed. Like, you know, like weepy and and moved and the people i went to see that movie with were like well that was dumb <laughs> and i and i needed to get away from them i needed to like i left and Im- me i was like good night and they were like i thought we were going out and i was like not anymore <laughs> like, i need to go sit and clutch my hanky for for like two days after the truman show
2: there, so it a is one-off. so it is possible for a movie to make you feel something
1: imagine truman would, show two real break electric through. boogaloo you wouldn't want to see that, would I you? I
2: thought
0: Interstellar was great. Uh, you don't believe we went to the moon? Uh, you know, I, I like when I find a, a pedantic note that that is funny to read to me. <laughs> like uh, this person is so dipped in the in the mythos. So uh, when the actual Death Star schematic is shown on a screen, it has an error. Oh. The super laser dish is shown on the equatorial trench. Uh-oh. It is actually above this trench, not on it. Of course, we all knew that. This may be a deliberate error done as a throwback to Star Wars colon episode four dash A New Hope, which has the same apparent goof.
2: That's nice. I like that. So It's, it's a either, throwback goof. It, it might be goof continuity. Goof
0: annuity. <laughs> I wonder like I'm I'm picturing like the special effects house at where somebody's like hey you go uh like come up with the the white on black uh death star diagrams and they're just like a guy that works in a special effects house like you know going frame by frame through the 1977 film and copy pasting and maybe they didn't maybe they didn't check with anybody else and maybe it slipped through again you know <laughs> I I
1: believe that anyone working on these movies um would be so soaked in it that it's way more likely that they would do that they would do that as a continuity goof than it is that anybody would make a mistake. You know, you hmm. you couldn't you couldn't possibly fail to appreciate that the that the laser cannon wasn't on the the equator. Of the Death Star.
2: Yeah, they know what they're doing. They do. They have to. In a way that has to be a little terrifying. Like, you will be scrutinized.
0: The guy that was the special effects director or or something for, like, the the head of special effects for all of the prequels was the one that pitched this as the first anthology film to the executives. So it it does feel like something that they would be kind of winking at the audience with.
2: His militancy has caused the United a great many problems. Well, it's review time on Friendly Fire, and even movies in the pork chop feed get their own rating and review. I'm so glad this film got picked for the pork chop feed. These are war films that are tangentially war related but this one felt like a real war film there was a commando raid and everything i mean in a star wars film you're given so many things things that you're made to buy things your action figures hold models for your action figures to play in like star wars as a lego kits yeah star wars as a universe is made of items that could be the rating system for a friendly fire episode but there's one object in the film that is not cool, and it is very plain, and I think it's the thing that really stuck out to me. It's, uh, it's Donnie Yen's character, Staff. Mm. He's the blind man in the film, but is he the one that sees the best of all? <laughs> it is Donnie Yen's character's uh, faith in the Force that allows him to be a fierce battlefield combatant. It is his Staff. That allows him to dispatch many an enemy, both both by hitting them and also by uh, by bouncing the laser beams off of him, off of it. It's uh, it's great, and it's low tech. Mm-hmm. It's low tech in a way a lot of Star Wars films are. It's like this is a uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Mm-hmm. But I think the future bashing of what is very clearly like a lot of arab and arabic type scenes and people like that's that makes up a big big part of star wars culture and donnie yen's staff is an example of like low tech turned into high tech through the use of his jedi faith i think that is going to be the rating system we use to rate rogue one a star wars story I've been fairly effusive in my praise of this film up until now. I think it is it's so good as a war film. It is a great Star Wars film. I think it's my favorite Star Wars film. Hmm. Really. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I just love every character and I really love feeling bad when they die. When every single one dies. I I feel like that anti-dopamine that like that hurt even k2so when he eats it at his station after closing the vault door man it's it's hard and even some of our best war films don't do that to us as a viewer like war films can kill off our favorite characters and give them that moment of of a heroic death and those are poignant moments that were made to feel but Very few war films clear the board. Yeah, it really is just like... Very few war films would ever think to do it. And it's a weird power that Rogue One has in knowing that like none of these characters can survive... Into future star wars films we know that going in but still to kill them all they're not going to kill them all are they
1: well and it's also not like a last stand situation where they all die at once in one place
2: yeah they They are given individual deaths and i think it it credits every character and every performance they're given the gift of that moment every one of them and it's the main reason i love this film even like even Mads Mikkelsen's character dies heroically and interestingly all the way down and it builds to this crescendo that space battle outside the planet shield was breathtaking in this film is super beautiful like throughout all of the all of the textures and colors are what you want in a science fiction film it's beautiful throughout but we were talking about uh, the speed of things in a Star Wars film and the space battle above the shield the mid-air collision and then the crash of the ship into the shield so good it doesn't get any better than that
1: no it's pretty amazing
2: it's epic
1: you in- finally see ships coming apart yeah. in this movie in a way that you want them to come apart right yeah. you feel the you feel the inertia you feel momentum you feel
2: materials i love that one star destroyer scrapes what i'm gonna call like the conning tower off of the other like just just fucking scrapes it off so amazing before going in to the shield and there's there's a very specific speed to that 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 i loved it's this movie is fast and slow and happy and sad it plays It plays throughout the spectrum of both of emotion and action. And I think I would give this 10 of Chirrut Imwe's staffs if I could. I think this is one of my favorite of all Friendly Fire films is this one. Whoa. I I love, love, love it. Wow. You're giving it 10 staffs? I can only give it five. So that is what I will give it. Wow. Five staffs. It feels like a miracle in every way that we've said up until now. And it's not four hours, it's two hours.
0: <laughs> I agree with you, Adam. I think it's a really terrific film. And much like when Donnie Yen's character takes out his crossbow and shoots a TIE fighter that then crashes into a turbo
2: laser tower, this movie nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, It was too far away for him to throw his staff at, so he had to go for the crossbow. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, but I'll throw all my staffs at this movie. Five staffs.
1: Five staffs. Boom. That's now we're up to 10 staffs. Yeah, it's a real bundle of staffs. Whew. I I don't think you can argue that this isn't a really good movie. Um, you know, and a great movie. The the little the little hat tips that they give us um, every time a spaceship takes off from a rebel base, there's always that guy in the tower. Yeah, I love that guy. What the hell is that guy doing?
0: At one point he's looking at the spaceship. How does he get down? How, how, what does he do? What's his job? There's no ladder up to that tower. I want to
2: see the little bag of lunch at his feet, you know? Yeah. You know he's going to take his lunch up there. <laughs> you know,
1: they have radar, right? They can tell ships are coming and going. Do they need the guy? Yeah, but what if the radar goes down? Sure. You're going to need a guy. He's up there. He's got a radio but it's got the wrong crystals in it. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that guy is there and you want to, you know, like every time, every time I saw him, I was like, yay. When they, when they power up the death star, you've got the, you've got the guy with the underbite helmet. Yeah. Which is like, as soon as they started, as soon as, uh, Grand Moff Tarkin was like, all right, let's, you know, shoot it. Shoot it. As he said, famously (laughs) shoot it. Um, I thought when I saw it in theaters, I was like, well, that's underbite helmet dudes job. And then he showed up and you heard it and he reaches up and it's from a different angle and you're like, thank you. Thank you. That's all I wanted. I just wanted that and the guy in the tower. But what this movie does is it creates. Go ahead. What were you about
2: to say, Adam? You just became what you hated with that statement. I do. I hate it. I hate (laughs) it. You're the guy
1: that wanted the callback. I hate it. I hate it about myself. I don't want to be that person. I want to say, like, no, give me a new guy in an underbite helmet. You're just a hypocrite. Give me a new... No, I'm... No. No part of being not a hypocrite is saying, I wish I weren't given the opportunity (laughs) to suck. This movie gives (laughs) me this opportunity to suck. Um, but when they go to uh, when they first show up at Jeddah and we're walking through Jeddah now this is what force awakens didn't do it I don't think force awakens created a believable environment of other worlders right in the way that when we're first introduced to that which is when we go into the cantina in the first Star Wars and you see this this multiplicity of of beings now now you look back at it and you're like those are corny but at the time it was like wow yeah and every Star Wars movie has tried to do it has tried to reintroduce us to a world where there are lots of different kinds of beings and they all I don't think I don't think any of them succeed right starting with the 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 gremlins no mm-hmm. not the gremlins the um what are the ones that yeah if you get them wet after midnight sure yeah
2: anyway Likewise. just just Small let wise. him go man <laughs> but when you
1: show up when you show up at jedi and you walk through the streets of jedi you're there yeah. you're in star wars you're in a place where you have a lot of different kinds of creatures and they're and they all belong and it's a and it's weird and it's crazy but it's but it's li- it's lived the town is lived in the experience is lived that's that's what sells me on this movie and i and i'm not taken out of it very often there aren't that many times when you're like, "Oh, boo." And and the one time that that I really was when I was like, "Why would Vader live in that?" Vader could live anywhere. Why is Vader living in that? It took me out and put me in a better place than I thought, which is like, "Wow, dark Vader lives in a fucking volcano castle." That's even better than I mean, as a, what it did was it made me nine years old again. And I was like, of
2: course, that's where Dark Vader is. That <laughs> is a hell of a part of a review.
1: As 50, as a 50-year-old, I was like, no, lame. But as a nine-year-old, I was like, fuck,
2: yes. I don't think a nine-year-old could take <laughs> all of their characters dying.
1: Well, so this, is a, this is a film for adults. The nine-year-olds that watch this movie, and I'm sure there are millions of them, they had to deal with everybody dying at the end.
2: If you were to assign a rating system of staffs, though... If you were to apply a rating to the film, how many stabs would you give it? I have more to say. Please. I yield the Stop floor. Stop trying
1: to silence John. What makes this a war movie is that that ragtag band of, of um, mercenaries and, and assassins and murderers they're actually wearing World War II helmets and that I do not understand how it is that that they went down to the surface of that planet on that commando raid dressed like Sergeant Rock and like B Company. But I loved it. I didn't want it to be different. And that was some war movie shit right there.
2: I love that they volunteered without being like coerced in any way. They just appeared. Just ready like, to go.
1: What, she's She's going to go get in the action. Let us get in the fight. Yeah. But I can't give it five staves for for various reasons that I've elucidated. <laughs> but it's really good. I'm gonna give it
2: Wouldn't it feel good to give five stabs though? No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That is the precise wrong way to coax John into doing anything. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to give it
1: four staves and one large long haired friend who always pulls your shit from the fire because your one long staff isn't quite enough to actually get you through some dangerous situations. And your big long haired, tough ass sardonic friend also has a machine laser gun, which yeah. we've never seen Belt before. Belt fed laser gun. How He's the, hell? the
2: Jesse Ventura of this movie, <laughs> he right? He really
1: is. What the hell kind of gun is that? And it's way, somehow they make it so it's way better.
2: Yeah.
1: It's better. And when you hear people get shot with the laser guns in this movie, you hear the impact of the, the sound design's incredible. Yeah. When he shoots people with that thing, you hear it go as it laser blasts them. And it didn't occur to me to want that until I finally got it. And then I was like, of course, that's going to... If it kills them, it's going to hit them. You're going to hear it at least puncture the clothes or go through their body.
2: So four staffs and one big friend. That's still a big score Yeah. in these parts. But who had the biggest guy? (laughs) Ben, who's your guy?
0: Uh, I made a very nerdy joke when I was watching... uh, this movie that i was very proud of so i'm just going to use my guy to set it up again <laughs> because uh when we see Jin Erso at the beginning she's in she's in jail she's in some kind of space jail and i i think i called it the Coruscant Women and Cthulhu Jail <laughs> because her her cellmate is a Cthulhu yeah so uh that's uh, that that Cthulhu that uh that she shares a bunk with that's my guy
2: Uh, K2SO is my guy. I
0: don't know why I'm proud of the joke. It's obviously not funny.
2: (laughs) That's a great guy. Don't sell yourself short. You're a great jokesman. Thank
0: you, Adam. Not all the time.
2: One of my favorite characters in movies is the guy who's been given the truth serum and just like, and it hangs on for too long. And then they have to exist in scenes outside of the interrogation hopped up on True Serum, and so they're like playing out the rest of their time, being the guy who's too truthful. That's K2SO in this film. He's, bit, he's the robot that's been reprogrammed, and a function of the reprogramming is that kind of statistical honesty that is both welcome sometimes and not. Played wrongly, it could be cheesy and bad, but it is a miracle that this character is written the way that it is, in a way that works every time, and give me a break, like feeling anything emotionally for the death of a droid, like, uh, seems impossible based. And, and as evidence of that, I give you every other star Wars film ever made as a counter argument <laughs> to that. Uh, but it works here. It works here extremely well. And I, I love that character. Really great job in designing K2SO. So that makes K2SO my guy.
1: Uh, well, during the scenes in the rebel base we're we're shown the kind of Congress of different rebel leaders. one of the rebel senior rebel leaders is a sort of white bearded dude and I think that his character's name is Jan Dodana he's a general <laughs> and um maybe he's in uh, other movies i can't i can't really tell because he does nothing he stands there at the table he's and the camera loves him the camera finds him four or five times where it's panning around and other people are talking and jimmy smith's is there and mm-hmm. and uh the lady that's in
2: charge and you know and all the people hullabalooing that's a really great scene in this movie that we didn't talk about just the reasons to go to war or reasons to pull back. Scene. Well, and also is really well articulated.
1: It's a great example of what happens in any leftist rebellion, where you have fifty different people espousing a viewpoint and nobody can get anything done. Mm. And then eventually, the the brave girl has to go out the back door and go, like, initiate some kind of movement, some kind of actual action, while the rest of the people are all in there yelling at each other. And Urso has a plan for that. Well, our man. Yan, what's his butt? Jan Dodana. <laughs> he stands there looking grave. He says maybe one line, but the camera keeps finding him. I don't know why. He doesn't move the. He doesn't move the action forward at all. He's just there in a kimono and a gray beard, and, pe- and people give him a lot of space. He's holding down a whole corner of that table, and I just felt like that's the job I always wanted. Guy that just stands there in a kimono looking grave but isn't really asked to like ever pick up a weapon or even make any crucial decisions he's my guy they just want his opinion yeah every once in a while he says you know in my day we used to have there's no 2001 a space odyssey red
2: he's that guy (laughs) your dad makes an appearance in this scene (laughs) what's everyone talking about (laughs) (laughs) that's a great guy yeah you're gonna get a lot of email about that guy i have a feeling he's a a guy with a name people are
1: like he's a very important character and the the reason he didn't talk on this day was that he has laryngitis and you would have known that if you had watched all the animated if you'd read my fanfic...
2: You know, you make the case for how aspirational this character is. I mean, you're a kimono away from being that guy. It's true. Right now. It's true. You could you could do it tomorrow. Yeah, I just feel like... You could do it right now by going to the closet, grabbing one of your several kimonos <laughs> and slipping it on.
0: Uh, I guess we'll leave it with Rob from there. For John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor go the spoiler alerts.
2: Friendly Fire's Pork Chop Feed is a maximum fun podcast. It's hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Make sure to use the hashtag #FriendlyFire Fire when posting about the show on social media. You can find Ben on Twitter at Benjamin A-H-R. Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick. And I am at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks so much for supporting Friendly Fire. Tell a friend. We'll see you next month with another
0: Pork Chop film.